Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. In this episode, we're going to visit with Blake Newton, and Blake is a 4-H Youth Extension Specialist with the University of Kentucky's Entomology Department. Blake has a really cool job, and he gets to spend a lot of his time in streams teaching children about insects that live in the water, and we call those benthic macroinvertebrates. Benthic macroinvertebrates are small insects that live on the bottoms of streams, rivers, or lakes, and we can see these insects with our naked eye. We call them invertebrates because, unlike us, they don't have an internal skeleton. Instead, their skeleton can be hard or soft, and it's on the outside of their body. So we can find all kinds of insects in streams. Identifying what kinds of insects are in the water and how many there are is a way for us to learn about the health of a stream. Some insects can only live in very clean water, while others can live in more polluted water. Agricultural communication specialist Carol Spence was able to spend the morning with Blake and a group of kids and parents. They were out sampling a stream in Garrett County learning all about macroinvertebrates. My name is Blake Newton. I work in the UK Department of Entomology as an extension specialist. And so my job is to help 4-H agents and other educators with any kind of educational programming related to insects. We are at um, the Dix River and our goal here today with these folks from Garrett County is to assess the health of this stream. When you go into, the, uh, into a stream, and this really only works for streams rather than lakes and ponds, the way this, this study works, um, you go into a stream, you spend a few minutes finding the creatures that are in there, and by creatures I mean specifically the invertebrates, insects, crayfish, worms. Um, and then you bring them out, you identify them, and it will actually give you a score at the end that, that gives you sort of a ballpark estimate of how healthy the stream is. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty accurate. Um, and you, you, uh, you can follow it up with chemical tests that will, that will uh, for instance, let you know if the pH is too high or too low, oxygen is too, too low, um, other factors. And a lot of times, um, the creatures that you find will match up with those those chemical um, those chemical measurements, and the the reason that insects are such an effective tool for telling you the health of the water is because they're kind of like that canary in the coal mine. As soon as the water conditions change just a little bit, those insects are very sensitive to that. They're they're in some ways they're almost a part of the water. They don't have any bones. Their body is very soft. So the difference between them and the water is very small <laughs> mm. compared to a fish, which is sort of a self-contained, almost like a scuba diver submarine. Mm. They're tougher. Mm-hmm. They can handle changes a little better than an insect can. Also, fish can do something that an insect can't do when water conditions get bad for some reason, which is they can leave. Fish are pretty strong. They can swim upstream or downstream. Mm-hmm. But insects... They're, they're not strong swimmers. The insects and the other invertebrates that live in a stream can give you a pretty accurate and pretty quick assessment for how healthy your stream is. So what we're going to do is 
um, just start looking for creatures. What we have here is, do you, do you guys know what this one is? It's, I forgot it. It's, <laughs> it's a really big, when it grows, yeah, it's a really big. It gets huge. And I've got a, I've got a preserved one with me in the car, but this is called a Helgramite. This is the aquatic stage of a flying creature that looks kind of like a dragonfly. This, this right now is only about an inch or a half inch long. It will eventually be two or three inches long and very stout. And it's almost like an underwater centipede. It hangs out under the water. It's a predator. It catches, at this stage, it will be catching small things. It has mandibles, It does. It has pretty sharp mandibles, um, but it will catch little minnows. It will catch other aquatic creatures. This is, this is actually a good sign. Uh, this creature, I generally only find it in fairly healthy water conditions. And so we've, we've already got one creature here, so we can get our data. Oh, Grayson's brought a yeah, crawfish. He's brought a crawfish. So crawfish, also called a crawdad. Um, a, a crayfish are, of course, very common in Kentucky water. We, um, we love to see them. There's a lot of crayfish diversity. There's several species. Crayfish have gills, too. Um, crayfish, very much like a lobster, if you've ever cracked one open, they're very closely related, and they have gills sort of up inside their body. A crayfish is not an insect. Crayfish have ten legs, so that lets us know that it's not an insect. But that Helgramite is a true insect. It's got six legs. Oh, we got a nice dragonfly. Uh, dragonfly larva. Yeah. So this kind of looks like a torpedo-shaped creature. Um, it, it, it is a dragonfly, and eventually it'll sprout wings. So it kind of looks like a dragonfly without wings, sort of long and narrow. And these guys are really cool because they are vicious underwater predators. This is one of those creatures that if this, if this thing didn't exist, dragonfly larvae, we probably wouldn't exist either because they eat so many mosquitoes, mosquito larvae underwater, that they help, they help us every day. Um, and the way they do it is they have a harpoon mouth. Check this out. Their, the lower parts of their mouth can sort of jet forward like a little harpoon like this. You see that? Look at that. And so they can be sitting still, little, little mosquito larva comes by, and their mouth shoots out and grabs it like a harpoon, and then sucks it back in and they eat it up. And um, the other thing about, about um, dragonfly larva that's really cool is they keep get their gills, they have gills too, but they keep it up inside their abdomen. So they pull water in, take the oxygen out, and then push it back out, and then when they want to, they can shoot it out like a jet and go really fast. So they can go whoosh. Are shooting water out of the back of their body. Now where Grayson found this is is still water and it's kind of muddy. Yes, yeah, it's this muddy water on the edge that's not really a part of the moving water and that's typical for dragonflies. They are going to be more likely to be in, in still water. But there's still enough oxygen in there for... There's still enough oxygen because because they have this sort of, uh, of muscular gill system, they're able to more efficiently draw air out of the water than something like a mayfly, which has what we call passive gills. Uh, so it's a little less sensitive to lower oxygen than something else. Now you say um, the adults don't do that with they can't do that yes. with their mouths. Do the adults eat? They do. The adults are vicious predators. Also, they fly over the water. There's probably some around us right now. Um, they fly over the water all day long, catching things that come out of the water, which are once again mosquitoes. But it's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing that this that this creature goes from being an, a totally fully aquatic underwater creature with harpoon jaws and then turns into a dragonfly, which is one of the most capable flying creatures on Earth, but it doesn't go through what we call a technical metamorphosis, it just makes a few changes. Um, so it's, uh, so dragonflies are amazing creatures, one of the first um, land insects uh, that, that we have. 
um, and that's reflected by the fact that they're partly in water and partly on land. And this is an insect that a lot of us see in our own backyard creeks, oh, sure. right? Yeah, they're, they're um, dragonflies and their, their relatives, damselflies, are going to be anywhere there's water. That's relatively clean. And uh, That's relatively clean. Uh -huh. Yeah. So they are a predictor of... They are. They're a little less sensitive than something like a mayfly or a stonefly. What's that? Oh, that's another one of the. Yeah. Is that a Dobson fly? It's the a bigger version of a Dobson fly. Okay, it's a big one. Something. Now, we spent this morning out in nature. <laughs> you know, we're out here in the country. But people who are, live in cities and in suburbs also may have backyard streams. Oh, yeah. Um, do they do those streams run into different problems than a than a rural stream would? Oh sure. So um, a rural stream might have problems from um, agricultural runoff, for instance, like atrazine levels, or uh, lots of sediment um, from maybe cows getting close to too close to the water, causing a lot of stirring up mud. Um, but an urban area has a whole different set of problems. Um, there's a lot of times there's no trees around urban water. So the water's going to heat up. Um, a lot of urban water has been essentially channelized. So you've um, what should be a natural stream is a concrete culvert, and sometimes those are still named. They still have whatever stream name they had a hundred years ago, but they're a concrete culvert now, and so there's they're essentially not natural at all. So there's there's all kinds of problems you run into in urban streams. But one of the cool things is that. There's almost always something alive in there, even if it's just a crawdad or some snails. So unless it unless unless it's really heavily polluted water that you don't want that would be dangerous to get into, which would be rare, we want kids to get out and play in this stuff. It's, it's valuable to see both the unhealthy and the healthy water systems. Why should we care if that backyard stream or that stream that runs for a beautiful park like this mm -hmm. is polluted? What does it matter to us? The, one of the most important things that you, a lot of people intuitively know this, but sometimes you don't think about it on a big scale, is that the little streams drain into the big streams, and then those big streams drain, drain into the rivers and then into the oceans. So what happens in a little stream in a backyard or an urban stream affects things downstream. So if the water is healthy upstream, that's going to cause problems downstream. So that's why we care. And um, in Kentucky, we really should care about water quality because how many people come to our state every year from Ohio and Indiana to go fishing? And if your little streams in the urban areas get polluted, and if the bugs die, fish eat bugs. So if the bugs die, there's not going to be any fish. So we should care about this stuff. Kentucky's number one water impairment is sediment, which just means dirt. That's dirt that's supposed to be up on the banks and and up on the up in the riparian zone that's getting washed into the streams, either from lack of adequate riparian zone or from construction projects, um, roads that go into the into the creek, um, livestock that go into the creek that stirs up that dirt and it clouds it, it causes the heat to, the, the temperature to rise, it causes all kinds of problems. So a lot of people, when they think about water pollution, they're thinking about, oh, chemical spills and things like that. Those things are problems too, but that sediment that getting in is, is considered number Kentucky's number one, and then heat from a lack of tree cover over the water. That's a serious problem too, because that can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to be a chemical spill to have no trees. That's just when when you've mowed too close to the to the stream. And so when the heat rises, that kills both the fish and the insects. 
So I would think both of those are fairly easy, easy problems to fix. to fix. Yes, easy things to fix and, and, and things that people just on their own properties can do. The thing is, if everybody in Kentucky managed their riparian zone and um, helped keep sediment out, which are, which are things that citizens can do, a few chemical spills aren't going to make a big difference. And we still, we still don't want chemical spills. But compared to just the vast amounts of uh, lack of tree cover and sediment that gets into the water, those cause lots more impairments than um, some of the what we call point source chemical pollutants. So yeah, there are a lot of things that we can do that would make a big difference. So Amanda, Blake uses the term a bit uh, riparian zone. What exactly is that? So riparian zone is, um, it's a, a word that a lot of times scientists use. It's kind of our jargon, our, our, the, the creek geeks and the stream scientists among us. We throw that word out a lot, and folks don't really know what it means. And really, it's just that transitional zone at the edge of a water body. Um, we could also call it a buffer zone. So that it's that transition between the stream or the water body itself and some other upland land use. So if you are driving around and you, and you look out on the landscape and you see a creek running through a field, I always look to see if there are trees or shrubs or maybe some native grasses that are protecting the stream bank from erosion. Um, and a lot of times, especially in urban streams, we, we see that that's gone. Um, I was taught as a kid that we mowed right to the edge of the creek because, um, you know, that might be where creepy crawlies lived. And, and some people in my family didn't like the creepy crawlies. Um, so those, those stream buffers are really important to protect stream banks from erosion and also shading the stream. So how can a homeowner learn how to protect those? You mentioned that urban areas, you know, they're mowed a lot. So is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, uh, funny that you ask, Carmen. Um, we actually have a new Cooperative Extension Service publication on how to protect and manage backyard stream buffers. Um, but some folks do mow to the edge, and a lot of times I think it's a perception. Folks really like to see a nice, clean landscape that's well manicured and managed. Um, I think sometimes it's our human nature to want to control our environment, and so we mow and we use weed eaters and those kind of tools to, to manage vegetation. Um, but really, we could put some plants um, on those stream buffers that we are really intentional about leaving them there, letting them grow, letting their roots grow deep into the soil, hold that soil in place, um, because it really does benefit our streams and water quality. And it can also benefit what lives in the stream, is that right? Oh, yeah, that's super true. You know, we talked about those helgramites. So those helgramites, the scary creatures that Carmen described earlier, those are a little bit tolerant of some pollution, but some of their other aquatic friends um, are not as tolerant. And so they don't um, tolerate sediment pollution um, and other forms of pollution, but certainly sediment can really um, decrease the habitat quality for our aquatic creatures. So Carmen, Blake talks about water temperature and how important that is for our aquatic insects. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, part of the reason is water temperature is really related to oxygen levels. So these creatures, especially the ones that are sensitive, need really high oxygen levels. And as our water gets warmer, its ability to actually hold oxygen goes down. So that's one of the reasons we get really concerned about um, what the temperature of the water is. And one of the reasons we monitor it is to know what our oxygen levels might be like. 
And so, and what about the the trees and and shading? Um, is that something that like a, a backyard stream owner could could do something about? Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about um, riparian buffers being very important for sediment. Well, it's also very important for what we call temperature um, moderation. So it keeps that temperature in check. So imagine if you're out in the summer and it's hot. Would you stand out in the open? What's it like then standing under a tree? So it's much cooler if you stand under a tree, and that's the same thing the stream feels. So the more shade that we can provide it, the actually cooler we can keep the water, and the better the oxygen levels will be for what lives in the stream. So, Carmen, Blake and Carol got to spend an exciting afternoon out in Garrett County exploring a stream with some some kids and their teachers and and I know those kids had a great time. It, there's some magic that happens when when kids get in creeks and put their waders on and splash around. Um, but but you're an engineer. I, I hate to bring that up. Um, and so sometimes stream ecologists really shudder when we when we see an engineer coming toward a stream. So from your perspective, um, what do you think about the interview that that we had with Blake? I absolutely loved it. Um, I teach a stream restoration class, and one of the things that I've incorporated into it is material from Blake on aquatic macroinvertebrates. Because until I started walking in streams with ecologists, I had no idea so much lived in the water. And just knowing what lives there and what it needs makes me better in my job. Um, So... I wish when I was a kid, I had somebody like Blake to lead me around and show me what was in the water. I think it's a he's a fantastic resource. Yeah, I think it's really important that we take kids out to streams. Um, we had our two-year-old out a couple of weeks ago turning over some rocks, and he found a water penny, and he was just really enthralled. And he, you know, still too young to understand the language and the names and, and all of that stuff, but he... I think grasps the concept that there's some critters that live there and those critters are, are really fascinating and interesting. Um, so it does my heart good to hear um, an engineer think, wow, it's really important for us to maintain the ecology and the ecosystem, healthy ecosystems of our streams. Yeah. And, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly about getting kids and getting people outside to realize what lives out in the stream, because I think once we know what's there, we care about it more. And, Streams, especially in urban areas, sometimes seem like scary places to people, and they're not. They're wonderful places you can go explore, and they have a lot of life in them. Um, and I think opportunities like Blake had to take those kids out, let them see that. Yeah, I think it's good. I think also for adults, it's a peaceful place. Um, we have a pretty hustle-bustle lifestyle these days, and I think it's a, a peaceful um, feature in our landscape that we can go enjoy, even if it's beside a busy road or in our own backyards. I think it's important for us to recognize that resource that we've got. It is, and I think the other thing I really got today was learning how we could protect it. Um, There's a lot of things that we can do just as uh, everyday citizens or landowners to protect what's actually living in the stream. So there's lots of things that we could share with our listeners. Um, Do you think maybe we could do this again sometime? I would love to. All right, I've got my waiters ready. (laughs) Mine as well. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.